join me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's several Bibles under the seat in front of you, and you may grab one there. If you don't have a Bible, it, um, you may want to grab one because it'll help you follow along, because it makes more sense if you follow along. Just forewarning you, you can do what you want, but it makes more sense to follow along. The Christmas story is what? How do we fill in that blank? The Christmas story is special, miraculous, wonderful, a time to have cake and candy with family, to get together, or if we're in COVID, we have to stay away, right? So everybody's miserable. What is, what is the Christmas story? I would posit, I would argue that it is surprising. It is surprising. The Christmas story is surprising. And I think we as Christians in America are used to understanding the Christmas story because we have all these little nativities. We have all the stories, all the songs. You can't get away from the Christian Christmas. Um, no matter what movie you watch, there's always some Emmanuel song or something in it that references back to Christ. You just can't. God rest you, merry gentlemen, is always in the background of certain uh, Christmas movies. So what is so surprising about Christmas to a people who have gotten used to hearing the same story? Well, I think it would be that God would become and come to earth and become a man in the form of a man. Yet more than that, a weak and defenseless child. Why would God come to earth in the form of a weak and defenseless child? It seems unusual. If I was going to invade a country, I'm going to send my best troops first. Um, that's what the uh, Marines think that they were made to do, was to be the first. We all know it's the army that does the real work. But we have this idea that we understand that when we invade, we want to send our best troops first. We want to take that beachhead. We want to break in with our best troops. But we see a baby come. Not only that, he comes in poverty. He comes in um, a, a virgin mother who brings him along, a wandering lady. She's moving from, um, to get the census going. Can we turn me down just a little bit, Rich? Um, and so what we see here in this passage that we're going to be reading is that God gives us Emmanuel in a surprising way. Now, some of the people of Israel responded to this idea that that God would come in human flesh, that God would be with us. That's the translation of Emmanuel, that God would be with us. They, they responded in skepticism. They're like, no way. We've read the story. We know that he's going to come as a conquering king. And so they are, they are skeptical. Could this really be the one that we are to expect? Now, the thing is, their response to this Messiah, this Savior, is not unusual. This is the response most people get. When you tell them that Jesus is the Son of God, when you tell them that this, this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, that this is very God, and they look at you and say, hmm, I don't see how that works. So there is this skepticism, and God's Word gives us insight into the human response to God. Our passage today will show us how the people of Judah responded to a time of trouble, in fact, where we turn when we are in trouble says a lot about us. So in our passage, turn to Isaiah chapter 8, and we are going to have some interesting words. So be prepared. Then the Lord said to me, 
Take a large piece of parchment and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahir Shalal Hashbaez. I have appointed trustworthy witnesses, the priests Uriah and Zechariah, son of, Beber, of Jeber Chai. I was then intimate with the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, Name him Mahir Shalal Hashbaez. For before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke again, spoke to me again, because these people rejected the slowly, slowly flowing water of Shiloh and rejected and rejoiced with Rezin, the son of Ramali. The Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will overflow its channels and spill over all its banks. It will pour into Judah, flood over it, and sweep through, reaching up to the neck, and its flooded banks will fill your entire land, Emmanuel. Band together, peoples, and be broken. Pay attention, all you distant lands. Prepare for war and be broken. Prepare for war and be broken. Devise a plan, it will fail. Make a prediction, it will not happen, for the God is with us. Or your translation may say, Emmanuel. For this is what the Lord said to me, with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people call say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony. Seal up the instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwell on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, Shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to his, this word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction and they will be driven back into a thick darkness. And I'm going to read a little piece of, of chapter 9. Never, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. We all know where Jesus was born, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word that speaks truth to us. Lord, we thank you for the Christmas story, the story that is a surprising act of love on behalf of God. Father, we thank you that you sent Christ to be our Messiah, to be God with us. We thank you that Christ is King 
on the earth and in heaven. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you've given us, the grace that we don't deserve. Father, we pray for those who are struggling this Christmas season. There are many who um, are alone this season. There are many who um, are just uh, destitute because of the tornadoes in Kentucky. Father, we pray for those who are struggling with this. Lord, we, we pray that, that your word would uh, speak truth to our hearts today, that we would see your word uh, manifest in our lives, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also, that we would submit ourselves to God revealed in Scripture. Lord, help us to be a people after your own heart. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. So desolation and destruction, despair and disintegration is really what this passage shows, doesn't it? We see that it's anticipated. There is a coming destruction for Judah. Isaiah, if you don't remember the background, Isaiah has been uh, called of God to be a prophet. God has given him words to speak to people. First, he goes to King Ahaz. King Ahaz says, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm making a treaty with Assyria. The Assyrians are going to be my salvation. I don't care about this God that I'm supposed to be a worshiper of. So Isaiah says, all right, you're going to be destroyed. And he turns and he says to the people, this is destruction is coming. They are, you are going to be wiped out. There's going to be a coming destruction. In fact, it's going to come and it's going to annihilate almost everybody. But there will be a small remnant that will continue to believe in the Lord God. After that, we are now where we are today. Again, the Lord says to Isaiah, and he tells them to take a large piece of parchment. This parchment, this word for parchment is kind of confusing. Really, he's taking a billboard. Have you ever seen those crazy people? The end is near on the sandwich boards. They walk around saying that. That's what he's doing. So Isaiah has to get this big board and write on it with a big magic marker. We know they don't have magic markers, but it says an ordinary pen. Make it visible so that everybody can see what is about to happen. He makes a clear sign of hope amidst this coming flood. There's an ark for God's Noah. There is a rescue for the people. And he uses surprising language to do it. Because how is God going to save his people in this? So he says, write on it with an ordinary pen. And what is he supposed to write? Who here wants to practice saying that? Mahir shalal hashbeez. Which really in the Hebrew is just four words. Speeding, plunder, hurrying, spoil. That's essentially what that means. Uh, the translation that we have is speeding to the plunder, hurrying to the spoil. It's a, it's a warning. Something bad is coming. The end is near, essentially, is what he has on this sandwich board. And he says in verse 2, I have appointed trustworthy witnesses. And these, these two people are probably not Isaiah's greatest fans. We have the priest Uriah and Zechariah, son of Jerpachiah. All we know about these folks is that they... We don't know much about them, but what we do know is that they're probably not in line with Isaiah. So people who are against Isaiah are going to be the witnesses. So if you really want to know something is true, you go to someone's enemy, and if they say this is actually how it happened, it's probably how it happened, correct? So we have Isaiah saying that this is what happened. Verse 3 tells us some intimate details. I was then intimate with the prophetess. So last week we saw in chapter 7 that there would be an Emmanuel that would be born from a virgin, correct? 
Obviously, this is not the same child. So we have an Emmanuel prophecy. There is going to be a child born of a virgin, and it's going to be named God with us. That's a future prophecy that's going to happen. Here, we have an immediate prophecy and a sign to make it obvious. This child is going to be born. And so the prophetess gets pregnant and she conceives. Now, just in case people are getting confused, prophetess is essentially his wife, the prophet's wife. I know it's confusing, but that's what this is. Prophetess is um, Isaiah's wife. They have a baby. And remember, we talked about naming children. We probably don't want to name them some of these names in here, right? Like Mahir, Shalal, Hash, Baez. Can you imagine saying that when they're, come back here. Anyways. And verse 4 says, Before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. So this child is born, and he is a, a future, he's a shadow of an Emmanuel that's going to come. But before he's able to say mama or dada, he is going, this is going to happen. So he is a sign and a symbol to the people. When they see Isaiah walk into the market with his son, they're going to recognize that soon Assyria and Damas or Damascus and Samaria will be destroyed by the king of Assyria. He said it's going to happen soon. This is a, a surprising sign. It's a, a symbol of a future coming judgment. He's going to eliminate the nations within about a year, nine months. This is going to happen. But not only that, we get this poetic language of a flood. Verses 5 through 8, we hear about a flood. The Lord spoke again, or spoke to me again. Because these people rejected the slowly flowing water of Shiloh and rejoiced with Rezin, the son of Ramali. What this is saying is that Judah is the flowing water of Shiloh and that these other two nations rejected God's provision. They rejected God's plan. Remember how we know that the king, the line of David is supposed to continue forever, correct? As the, uh, the kingly line of Israel. And so these other two nations, Israel itself, actual Israel, and Ephraim joined against uh, Judah and the line of David against them. And that's what this is saying. So these people uh, came against God's plan. The Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River. Is this going to be a literal river? Or is it talking about the Euphrates River? Has anybody been to Iraq and seen the Euphrates River? Okay, just wondering. It's nasty. Um, this is going to be Assyria. This is representative of Assyria, the Euphrates River, which he explains for us. He says, the king of Assyria and all his glory. So this river is going to flow, but it says it's going to do more than that. It will overflow its channels and spill over all its banks. How many of you have seen a wash overflow its banks? Here in Arizona, we see that a lot during rainy season, don't we? And we don't want to drive through it. We want to turn around, don't drown. That's, the, that's the, the rule that we follow. And so when the water overflows, it takes with it everything in its path. It's a destructive force. And so that's what we see here is the king of Assyria is going to overflow its bounds. It's going to seep into, it's going to pour into Judah. Verse 8, it will pour into Judah, flood over it, and sweep through reaching up to the neck and its flooded banks. It will fill your land. So not only is the king of Assyria going to take out 
these two other nations that are, are at war against Judah, it's also going to overflow into Judah and destroy Judah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to plunder Judah. In fact, it ends with the saying, Emmanuel, God with us, which points to a historical event. This is exactly what happened. The king of Assyria went and he destroyed the Syrio-Ephraimite uh, teaming up. Those two people joined together, Syria and Ephraim. They joined together and the Assyrians destroyed them. Assyria also conquered the, rest, the remaining northern kingdom of Israel. So this happened. But not only that, then the Assyrians said, you know what? Why not just take Judah while we're at it? And they went in and they destroyed Judah, plundered Judah, and set up essentially a, a little vassal state, they, uh, a puppet kingdom for themselves. And so we see that this is exactly what happened in history. So we have this, this piece of information. Isaiah is saying, this is what's going to happen. You trusted in the Assyrians, and you are going to be destroyed by the Assyrians, the ones you trusted. But it's not over yet, friends. There's, there's hope still. 9 through 10 show about Emmanuel's triumph. Because it says, band together peoples and be broken. The people that they're referring to here is these foreign nations. The foreign nations against the people of Judah. It says, band together peoples. You know, you can team up, but you're going to be broken. Pay attention, all you distant lands. Prepare for war and be broken. Prepare for war and be broken. Verse 10 says, devise a plan it will fail. Make a prediction. It will not happen. For God is with us. Translation again, Emmanuel. So this theme of Emmanuel is, is flowing through chapter 8. Starting in chapter 7, we really saw the emphasis. Chapter 8, and then Christmas Eve, and then the Christmas, the day after Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas, we're going to talk a lot about chapter 9, which talks about this coming Emmanuel, this coming Messiah. Even though this flood is going to come, it's going to, God is going to protect his remnant, his true people. The enemy may gather against them, they may, but they will be broken. Everyone who, who plans against God's people will be destroyed. There is protection for God's people. And why is that? Because God is with them. That is what the theme since the Exodus has always been, hasn't it? In fact, it even started before that with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, what does God tell his people when he wants to comfort them when they're afraid of the enemy nations? Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Over and over and over again, we have this theme. In fact, that's how it started in the garden, didn't it? God was with Adam and Eve. They had him with them, yet they still rejected their God. But because God is with us, Emmanuel, this will not happen. Even though there is a short-term calamity and destruction determined by God, because God said he's going to use Assyria to do this. He's going to use them as a rod of his destruction. There is a future where Emmanuel, where God is with us. Now, there's a lot that we can glean from this passage. There's a lot that we can gather from it. But we're going to move forward. We're going to move on to the next part. Because the next part, I think, really has the message of this passage. It says, um, it shows us that there is a surprising bit of joy in darkness. And so we have a surprising message in verse 11 through 22. The surprising message is that there, God is holy and he is a refuge for those who fear him, 
yet a snare or a trap for those who do not. Look at verse 11. It says, For this is what the Lord said to me. So God is speaking to Isaiah. He's saying something to Isaiah. And why does he say it? It says, He said it with great power in order or to keep me from going the way of his people. So the people of Judah are now frightened. They are scared. They are um, anxious. They are nervous. They are um, watching all the news, reading every conspiracy theory and blog. They are freaking out, as we would say in the, our regular English. They are freaking out. They are scared to death. There's a conspiracy. And so what does God tell Isaiah? Verse 12. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Don't do it. Stop it. But what does God do beyond that? He doesn't just tell them not to do it. He gives him a reason why. He says he has given Isaiah a vision. Remember Isaiah chapter 6 where he saw this holy God high and lifted up? And I told you everything that Isaiah says and does in the book of Isaiah flows from this vision of God. And this is what we see here in verse 13. It says, you are to regard or regard, regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Remember that word holy? We talked about that. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. What do you do when you chase after conspiracies? What do you do when you are terrified about everything that comes across the news? You're not trusting in God. You're not seeing God as holy. Holy is perfect. That he has a perfect plan. In fact, it says Lord of armies. When it says Lord of armies, that's a reference to his sovereignty, his power, his omnipotence, his strength, his ability to do whatever he wants to do. God's word is a powerful sustainer of our faith that protects us from wild speculation we don't have to fear we don't have to fear like everybody else does because conspiracy theories are abounding now i, I know everybody's getting nervous because i think i'm talking about america no conspiracy theories at this time were abounding everybody was worried that something bad was going to happen to them and they weren't listening to what god's word said that yes it is going to happen syria is going to be destroyed. It's going to be done by the Assyrians. Now, that's, they sound a lot alike. They're two different people, Syria and Assyrians, just in case we're getting confused over here. I just got confused five seconds ago. The Syrians are going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. Okay, we got it. So this, this conspiracy theory is happening. There's gossip and rumors and talk about treason and talk about um, January 6th and all these things. Right, all these conspiracies are happening. And the people are buying into it, aren't they? They're living their life based on the word of the, the land, not the word of the Lord. And so Isaiah has a job to do. He has one task. Verse 13, his only concern is with the Lord of armies. And that is to see God as holy. Remember how Isaiah's vision drives his ministry. He knows that God is holy. Do you know that God is holy? Because if you know God is holy, that should lead you to submit to him in all circumstances. If God is holy, which means he is perfect, morally perfect, he is not going to do anything wrong. 
That means he's not going to be malevolent for no reason. That means he's not going to hurt you without a purpose. That doesn't mean that he is going to be um, arbitrary in his judgment. It means that he is perfect. If God is not holy, then he is not God. And so we have to recognize this. We have to see who God is. And so Isaiah's job is to look only at the Lord, not to look at this conspiracy, not to call everything conspiracy, not to fear what the people fear, not to spend their time filling his mind with speculations, the what ifs, the possibilities, no matter how plausible or interesting. We are to fill our mind with the Lord. Man, this verse could be a sermon all on its own, couldn't it? We could spend the whole period of our time just studying this passage because it really says, how do we fight fear and anxiety and worry and addiction to the news cycle? How do we do that? By looking at God. Why are we so worried about what people are going to say? All these people muttering and chirping. Look at the Lord. If he's, in, if, he, if he's in control, if you believe that God is in control, which I do, I think he's in control of all things. I don't think there's anything happening that's not, that is outside of his plan. Then why are we worried? Why are we meddling in God's business? All right? I mean, because that's, I mean, that's what we're doing when we, we worry about circumstances. We are only responsible for our response to them. And ultimately, we need to look at the Lord as holy. Looking at the sovereign ruler of the universe gives me such great comfort. I'm able to lay my head down at night and sleep because I know that God is in charge. In fact, I think that's a reason why we sleep is because that's the one way, the one time we're not spending all of our time worrying about everything. We have to trust that God's got this. Verse 13 is, is pretty powerful. And I'm going to just break down verse 13 really quickly. So first, we have to see that the Lord of armies is God. God is mighty. He is powerful. Nothing happens apart from his permission. Second, you see that he is holy. That means he is perfect in every way. He is morally pure. God does no wrong things. I know that's not great grammar, but it really makes sense to me. God does no wrong things. Third, we must, we should fear him alone. We should only fear God. Fearing God is an interesting theme in the Bible, isn't it? I liken it a lot to um, when I used to be on the beach and a big wave would take me and like just jumble me around and I'm caught up in something much greater than myself, right? You don't know up from down, but you see the awe, the power of the ocean. Or maybe it's when you go to the Grand Canyon and you look over that vast chasm and you see just how big it is and you're awed. And you're like, this is so much more than me. Nobody goes to the side of the Grand Canyon and yells out, I am the greatest, right? We all sit there and we're just like amazed. Or, or a good sunset. Uh, you know, in Arizona, we have these beautiful sunsets and sunrises. And we can just be in awe of the vastness of who God is. We should fear him in an inspiring way. But we should also fear his power. Have you ever got caught up, caught up in something much greater than yourself? Like a big storm, or maybe wrapped up in your parents' arms, knowing that they are so much stronger than you. These are the things that you should think about when you think about fearing the Lord. Fourth, we should hold Him in awe. That is, we revere Him. That means we worship Him. That He alone should guide our worship. When you think about how do I worship, we need to follow what God says to the letter. 
He is our one source of salvation. He is our only hope. So when circumstances get bad, do we turn to our earthly joys, our earthly hopes, our earthly salvations, or do we turn to salvation that comes from the Lord alone? God, you know, it, it's interesting about this pandemic, and I'm going to be real honest with you. The news has really messed this thing up, haven't they? The, uh, all, of, all the smart people in our government have really messed things up. They've, uh, they've gotten some things confused. And then they presented it in a confusing way. So us dumb people don't know what to think. So we have all this confusion. So we have the smartest people in our country messing things up. We have the government, who are supposed to be good governors and good rulers, messing it up. We have uh, friends and relatives who we used to think were really smart. Now we think they're really dumb because they've, they've drunk the Kool-Aid, whichever side it is. We can't trust in our government to save us. You can't trust in the doctors to save you. You can't trust our military to save us. You can't trust in anything to save you apart from the Lord. And that's the reality. We can't trust in our health. We can't trust in the longevity of our family members. There's nothing that we can trust in in this world except for Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we see over and over and over again is our one source of hope needs to be God. Not how clever you are. Not how well, you can do this or do that because a lot of people are out of work. You may not be able to provide for your family. Can you trust in God in these circumstances? If, if anything, God has removed the idols of this nation um, in a very obvious way, and we just have to pay attention. Verse 14 through 15 show us that some people will not do that. They will not pay attention to what God is saying. What should be a refuge in a place of safety and hope actually ends up being a stumbling block, a trap. Jesus and the apostles point out this passage over and over again when talking to the Jews who do not listen to him. Uh, look at verses 14. It says, He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel. Remember, Israel is divided. We got Judah in the south and the northern kingdom in the north, and we just call that Israel. So we have two kingdoms. The, 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 the northern kingdom has really abandoned the line of David, they rejected Judah as king, uh, the tribe of Judah as, king, as the uh, ruling king, and so they've rejected them. And so we have two tribes, two houses of Israel. And he said he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are not going to see the Messiah. Look at, um, I'm going to read Luke 2, 34 to you. Then Simon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. Even the New Testament authors recognize the failure to see that God is the one that we should trust. You know, our passage splits up and directs us to two kinds of people. This is, um, this is very typical of Hebrew poetry, Hebrew literature, and really the Old and New Testament. There are two types of people in the world, the righteous and the unrighteous those who belong to God and those who don't. And so that's what we see. We see a remnant, and then we see a rebellious people. It gives us these uh, two types, and it gives us markers of these two types, or evidences or characteristics. All right, so the first one in verse 16 is a mark of the remnant. Those who belong to God will do this. Look at verse 16. They will hold to the testimony and instruction of the Lord. They will hold to his word. They will trust that what God says is true is going to happen. 
They are not going to listen to the conspiracy theories. They are not going to get caught up in the news cycle. They are going to trust in what God's Word says. They're going to put their hope in this coming Messiah. Verse 17 says that they are going to wait for the Lord. They are waiting for the revelation of God, of what God is going to say. They are not going to try to direct providence with their own abilities and their own wisdom. They're not going to try to force God into doing it. Verse 18, we see that they are going to trust in the Lord through His signs and wonders. Uh, this is an interesting passage because this word signs and wonders shows up a whole bunch of times in the book of Acts. If you ever get bored, just open up Acts and read through it and highlight signs and wonders and see what it's talking about. Over and over again, it's pointing to this coming Messiah and what God did. Now we have the marks of the rebellious. So what do the rebellious people do? Verse 19. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter. Your translation may be a little bit different, but essentially it's looking to the witchcraft. You're looking at um, mind readers and those who can talk to the spirits. In fact, some, some people have like horoscopes in there. You, you, you base your life off of the stars. So what is that? That's rejecting God's instruction. When you go to external sources for wisdom outside the word of God, you are trusting in silliness is essentially what Isaiah is saying. You are rejecting God's instruction. By turning to um, mystical experiences, you are rejecting God's revealed will. Why would God spend all his effort in creating for us his word here bound and ready for us to study, to examine, to understand, for us to go and chase after extracurricular knowledge. This is all we need, friends. So the, the rebellious will reject God's instruction and chase after other things. Verse 20, we see an idolatrous hope. Verse 20 says, Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to His word, there will be no dawn for them. It's a, it's a repetition that they are rejecting God's instruction by hoping in something else. They have idols that they trust. They have um, external things that they are putting their hope in. Verse 21 says that those who are rebellious will have a sense of hopelessness. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward, they will curse their king and their God. Man, if that doesn't describe some of the angry atheists that I've run across, I don't know what does. It's interesting that they hate someone so much that they don't believe in. And so when we see this, we see that there is a sense of hopelessness. Where is the hope found if you do not have God? You wander and you, you rage. That's the second or the, I guess like the fifth thing for rebellious, is you rage and you anger. Man, folks who do not have God are angry, so much anger, so much rage, so much frustration. It turns to hatred. And who do they hate most? They hate God. Even though they do not know Him, they reject Him. Even though what is plain to be revealed to them is plain for them to see, they reject Him. There's a hatred of God. Verse 22 says that they wander with no light. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness and gloom, of affliction. Man, when someone who doesn't believe in God comes to me and says how depressed and sad and, and upset they are, 
I believe them because there is no hope. What's the, if, if we're just a, a result of cosmic fizzy stardust that crashed together at one point and all that happens in our brain is just chemical responses to some external stimuli, what's the point of any of this? Where do we gain any moral reasoning? It doesn't make any sense. And so we, they wander with no light. How often do we see people jumping from one thing to the next? You know, somebody smarter than me said something like, it's not that the atheist stops worshiping, it's just they worship something else. How many of you have friends who have rejected Christianity, but they've turned to like crystals and good chakras and karma, and they turn to some other form of belief and worship? You know, and, and they're, they're spiritual, not religious. It's just not, it's not that they've stopped worshiping, it's they've started worshiping something else. But even, even the atheist who doesn't do an external worshiping practice, what do they worship? Self, right? We worship ourselves. And so that's the atheist thing. But guess what, Christians? When we reject God's word, when we fail to submit to who God is as he reveals himself in scripture, what are we doing? We are creating an idol in our own hearts internally that we worship. How often do you hear people say, well, that's not like the God that I worship. My God's this, my God's that. How come we don't look at scripture and understand? And what does it say? Doom and gloom will be their companions in verse 22. So this is a, the conclusion of our passage. This is darkness. This is sorrow. This is heavy. This is weighty. The weight of the world is crushing down on the people of Judah. It's darkness. It's affliction. And if we just... If we had another week before Christmas, I would have a sit on that. But Christmas is next week, or this week. And so we don't get another Sunday. So I'm going to talk a little bit, very briefly, about light, about joy that's coming forth, that's bursting forth. Christmas Eve, we're really going to push it up and celebrate it. But darkness gives us a backdrop for Christmas. Christmas Eve, we're going to look at how we get this joy where hope is found, and that is in Emmanuel, God with us. When we look around in this dark and gloomy world, we can find joy in God. You know, if you look at this passage from a different perspective, if you go back and reread this, look at the two directions people are looking for joy. How are people looking for joy in this passage? The remnant are finding their joy in the Lord, and it's not going to be shaken. The non-remnant, the rebellious, they're looking for their joy in the things of this earth, the things of this world. They're looking for joy and happiness in everything around them, in their relationships, in their presence, in their abilities. And what's going to happen? It's going to be destroyed. There's darkness. Joy, true joy, is found in trust and depending on God who is with us. Emmanuel is our hope and joy. And we have joy in the surpassing presence of God. I'm just going to read the last, the last little bit of chapter 9 for us as we end. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you. They rejoice at harvest time as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their, their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and bloody garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Do you have that hope? Then you can have joy. If that doesn't inspire hope in you, then you're not going to find joy. We need to look to Christ. Look at this Messiah, this coming one, and that's where we find our true joy. Can we have joy this week by casting away the idols that we've so easily trusted in? The things that we thought were more important than God and what God says. That's how we have true joy this season. Come Christmas Eve as we unpack it. And then the Sunday after Christmas, I'm going to go in a lot more depth in that little passage. So we'll have two, two uh, sessions of this passage. That's how important chapter 9 is to our message. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and the truth that is in it. God, we thank you that when you speak uh, through the word, we can have hope and we can trust in it. We know it's true because of Jesus Christ coming 700 years after this prophecy and being that sacrifice for us, the sacrifice on the cross. Lord, uh, if, we are, if there's anyone in this room that is, is living in sin, I pray that you would work in their hearts, that they would repent and turn to you and have the hope and joy that comes from following Christ. Lord, we know that this season can be difficult for so many of us. Those of us who are Christians, who trust in you and have hope in you, can still face depression and sorrow and loss. Father, I pray that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us in those moments. Father, I pray for this congregation, that they would be strengthened and encouraged by the one who came to die so that we may live. Father, I thank you for Christ. Thank you for Christ Jesus and the, the Holy Spirit that, um, that was the, the mode of the impregnation for Mary. We thank you that they were two babies in the womb that leapt for joy, that inter intervened in a life that they had planned and a surprising change in what um, we would have expected. Lord, we thank you for this season that reminds us of who Jesus is. We thank you for this season that reminds us of who you are. Lord, I pray that we put our trust in you and that we hope in you during this season. May we have joy that abounds and that we share that with our neighbors and that we go from place to place sharing the good news. In Jesus' name we pray.